right, my friends, it's a rainy Labor Day weekend here in Massachusetts. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weekends ago, I was out in Leadville, Colorado, running the Leadville Trail 100 with Eric. And I have done my best to write up my thoughts from the race, and I will present that to you here as an episode. A couple days late, but I've been busy. I try to put some humor into this, so if there's stuff in here that rubs you the wrong way, I'm I'm trying to be a little bit absurd, uh, so try and do some humor, yeah. I read Peter Sagel's book, The Incomplete Book of Running, and he uh, he's very, very funny, so I was trying to ape him a little bit, but maybe it'll show, maybe it won't. Anyhow, this is, uh, you know, it's what I do, so I'll give him my best shot. And away we go. And you may hear Ollie in the background. This is our first podcasting session with the the new puppy in the in the room. So we never know what he's going to be up to, right? He may come zooming by with something in his mouth, and I may have to chase him down. So we were out for a walk today, and he got attacked by a yellow jacket in the woods. It's it was quite traumatizing. All right, you ready? Let's go. Leadville, two thousand nineteen. Call me a schadenfreude asshole, but the moment that stands out from this adventure was watching Eric throw up for the first time in his ultra career, just after we left the hopeless aid station. That's the first point where I thought I was actually adding value. Until that point, I felt like a bit of a third wheel, maybe some poorly chosen window dressing for Eric's 8th LT100. But right then... As he tried to yawn a toxic combination of noodles and electrolyte drink into the bushes, I felt like I was needed. Like there was work to be done. And who doesn't like to be needed? Chapter 1. Anticipation Eric asked me to pace him at the Leadville Trail 100. Sometime around the beginning of the year, six or seven months ago, He caught me at a low point. That ebb in activity where the fall race season is behind you and the spring training hasn't started yet. A time when summer is as far off as old age used to be. That midwinter blue period. The doldrums of the year. A time when I wallow in manic depression without so much of the mania. He knew I'd be weak. You may have heard of the Leadville Trail 100 Ultramarathon, the race across the sky. It was established in the early 1980s as a secret government program to harness the psychic energy of ex-drug addicts by making them suffer at altitude for hours on end. Then the Iron Curtain rusted, the wall fell, and Vladimir Putin started posing for romance novel covers. They had to make up a cover story about saving the town of Leadville from imminent demise, from the abrupt closing of the Climax Mine, and here we are today. The fun thing about Leadville, and here I use the term fun to mean awful, is that it sits at an altitude approximately 200 meters south of the moon's orbit. It's a place where only a few thimblefuls of oxygen reach, and those few thimbles They have to be shared among everyone in town and a few dozen shaggy mountain goats. It's known for its rough western setting, its panoramic scenic mountain vistas, and spontaneous nosebleeds right before you pass out. As we came into the summer, and the event started getting closer, 
it began to dawn on me that maybe this wasn't a good idea. It's one of those things that seems like a really good idea six months in the future, where it can't harm you, but starts to get a little gnarly looking as it comes into focus in time. Eric casually mentioned that one of his pacers was in Europe for a wedding, and the other was hurt. So, hey, I'm going to need you for 39 miles. Wait, what? 39 miles at altitude? In the middle of the night? That's terrifying. So I did what I usually do and didn't train for it. Well, I mean, I was just rolling out of a couple of marathon efforts, but in general, I maintain a pretty solid level of fitness. But 39 miles in altitude, that is an ultramarathon. I live about 250 feet above sea level. Hope passes 12,600 feet above sea level. You do the math. Unless you're actually on Hope Pass, because you won't be able to do any math at that altitude. But yeah, that's two miles straight up. Now, the highest I've ever been is Denver, and that's one mile up. Hope Pass is two miles up. Again, math-wise, twice as up. And here's the thing they don't tell you, until you get there and it's too late. Then they tell you, because they think it's funny, the oxygen content in the air is nonlinear. At sea level, where I and all the bright people live, the oxygen content is about 21%. Where we were running, it was in the 12 to 13% range, 42% less oxygen. And just as a reminder, humans need oxygen to do things like breathe, run, stay alive. I had visions of me bent over coughing up blood by the side of the trail while Eric ran on. I read a race report from the Leadville Trail Mountain Bike 100, held a couple of weeks previously from a guy my age, and he had a small stroke at the top of one of the passes, and the mean old race officials made him stop racing when he started slurring his words. He was pretty sure his racing days were over. So, on the minus side of the leisure, I hadn't trained well. I'd never been at this altitude, let alone run at this altitude. My head might explode, and I might give out on my runner, which is very bad form. On the plus side, I have a lot of trail running and mountain racing experience. I was picking him up at 50 miles, so he was already cooked when I got him. And I'm pretty good at suffering when I need to be. And, and, this is just the sort of stupid shit that turns my crank, so to speak. Chapter 2. Getting There Well, I flew from Boston to Denver on a Thursday afternoon. The race is on, well, it's one of those stupid ultra things. The runners start on Saturday morning at 4 a.m. They have to finish by 10 a.m. on Sunday. It's a 30-hour cutoff, which sounds generous, but less than 50% of the people who start this race finish. And a majority of those miss the cutoffs at some point in the race. Flying into Denver, it's unique. I've done a lot of flying in my career. You know, when you fly into Orlando, it's all screaming kids with mouse ears. When you fly into Vegas, it's all drunk people in cowboy hats. When you fly into LaGuardia, it's all close-talking, loud people shouting into their cell phones. And on most flights through the Midwest, I get squeezed between corn-fed Midwesterners who take up most of my personal space with their MAGA hats and overstretched golf shirts. Or perhaps a California flight, 
with that crazy woman that wants to talk to me about her vitamin regime for six hours. No, 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 not the flight into Denver. Everyone on the plane is an endurance athlete of some form, even the children. On the one hand, it's quite spacious with all these skinny people. On the other hand, if I had to resort to cannibalism, they looked a little bit grisly. But if I did have to resort to cannibalism, I'd start with the vegans, because I think that would be ironic. If we did crash, I'd be all set. You could not hope for better seatmates. I'm sure they could carry me out of the airplane, up a mountain, while devising intricate splints and tourniquets from spare tent pieces and technical fabric scrounged from those North Face backpack carry-ons, maybe shoot some rapids in a kayak assembled from air sickness bags on the way back to civilization. So Eric and his crew fetched me at the airport. I felt like an adopted child being picked up by the new parents. I've hung out with this crew before, and they are a blast to do an event with. We did the New Orleans Marathon in 2014. It's another one of my favorite race memories. Eric, his wife, Dan, Eric's best friend and other pacer, Dan's wife. We would round up the crew with Eric's son, Eric's son's wife, who was also pacing, and one of Eric's son's friends, who was his other pacer. So Eric and his son run the race, and I've interviewed them before. You can go back and listen to that. Pretty cool to run a race with your uh, with your kid, an ultra. To formalize this relationship that Eric has with the Leadville 100, sort of an indentured servitude type of relationship, Eric bought a house in Breckenridge, which would be our race headquarters for the weekend. I had a room at a Breckenridge hotel about a mile away. And Breckenridge is a nice town in a Stepford Wives sort of way. You sort of feel like you're on a movie set, and it's all not quite real. But that could have been the total lack of usable oxygen making it to my cerebral cortex. At the hotel, I was on the sixth floor, and I'll tell you a Colorado story. I was walking to the elevator. And there was a young dad behind me with a five- or six-year-old boy. And I was going to let that kid press the button in the elevator. But they marched right by me and into the stairwell. And I figured, hey, they must be on the next floor up or something. And when I was exiting the elevator, there they were, trooping down the hallway in front of me. Really? It's Colorado. We don't need elevators. We don't need stairs. Just put in a climbing wall and we'll belay our luggage up from base camp. Pass me a piton, belay on. Chapter 3. Camp Foreshadowing. As I walked over to base camp, the house, early Friday morning, I passed a guy out on the sidewalk having a morning smoke. As we exchanged pleasantries about the beautiful morning, I thought to myself, this guy is going to get mugged by a gang of high-altitude hipsters. I figure he'd be pilloried on an extra mountain bike frame when I came back by, if Smokey the Bear didn't get him first. I consciously chose to walk the less than a mile through the bad streets of Breckenridge just to see how the altitude would feel. Would I be gasping for breath? Would my muscles be screaming for oxygen? Would my head explode? Turns out, the answer to all this hyperbole was, no, I felt fine. Well, I felt altitude fine, which from my experience in Denver feels a bit like 
a three-beer hangover combined with a bit of an allergy. We collected the tribe and we drove over to Leadville. We collected our tribe and drove over to Leadville through Frisco and the valley where the headwaters of the Arkansas River begins to eventually make its way into the Mississippi. The whole place is just drop-dead scenic. The Rocky Mountains rise up on all sides with their 13,000 and 14,000 foot peaks. There's still snow on the tops of the mountains. With the thin air, the mountains, they pop out at you like some ultra-real Instagram filter. Their crags and points crisp and sharp in the lasering sun. It's just an interesting place, Leadville. There was uh, an apocalyptic novel written in 2008 where Leadville becomes the new capital of the United States called Plague Years. Yeah. Among other things, a lot of things go on in Leadville. It's got a ton of history, a ton of character. You take all that and you pour several hundred near-psychotic ultra-runners on top and you've got a party. It turns out that after his seven straight Leadville finishes, Eric is pretty much the mayor of Leadville. And everywhere we went, he would be embraced by emaciated trail ghosts. There was much backslapping, handshaking, and hugging. I think he has a good chance in the upcoming election. We attended the pre-race briefing, which is a bit of theater. The longtime race directors all stand up and give an inspirational talk, and it's wonderful, feel good, almost like a family reunion kind of feel. The ultra-running community is very, very close. Almost everyone has a backstory. There are recovering addicts and abuse victims, all those lost souls who can only find peace deep in the dark place out on the trails. Which made me wonder what dark secrets Eric was harboring to drive him into this carnival of lost souls. I'm going to go with dressing up in women's underwear and dancing around just because the visual cracks me up. But from the briefing, we wandered over to the expo, which was a small, open-air affair. They had everything you would expect at an event like Leadville. Commemorative shirts, extra nutrition for the runners, handmade backpacks crafted from organically harvested koala foreskins, and as much CBD as you could carry. Eric and his son grabbed their stuff, more hugs, more selfies, and we commuted back to the ranch. In some wonderful news for me, Dan's knee was feeling better, and he'd pick up Eric a bit earlier on the course. So instead of 39 miles, I'd only have to survive 27 miles. Piece of cake. We had a nice dinner, a couple of beers. Everyone got to bed early. They would be getting up early to be there for a 4 a.m. start. And the rest of us would sleep in and head over to catch them as they came through Twin Lakes in the early afternoon, then pop over to the turnaround, the 50-mile mark at Winfield. Chapter 4. Wait for it. Much of Friday was spent by the runners running the Leadville course. Much of the day for us was spent waiting waiting for them to come through Twin Lakes, waiting in line for the buses over to Winfield, then lying around the sun at Winfield, waiting some more. And the weather was wonderful for waiting, a little warm for running, but wonderful for waiting. I ended up with a bit of a sunburn before the day was over. 
While I was getting ready, I realized my water pack had sprung a leak and had to do a quick tape job on my bladder to fix it. I've had that pack for a long time, and it's starting to show. I would pick him up at the Winfield Aid Station, which is the turnaround point for the out and back, about 50 miles in. Dan, Eric's best friend and longtime pacer, had the last seven of Eric's races in a big spreadsheet, and we partially knew what to expect. Eric has a history of falling down early in this race. <laughs> last year, he broke his nose. So he decided this year to go out a little bit slower in the early sections to avoid rolling in the dirt so much and keep the blood inside his body. Because of this go-out-slower strategy and the warmer day, he was late coming into Winfield. Now, Eric is as calm as a cucumber on a cool day, a real machine. The whole time I was with him, he was lucid, he was forming whole sentences, and he was moving well, which is not an easy thing to do after 60 or 70 miles at altitude. I, on the other hand, was still a bit terrified. I didn't. I still didn't know if I'd be able to perform at altitude. I knew we were close to the cutoffs, and my equipment was acting up. But on the plus side, I had my runner, and the game was on. I had a job. Eric knew what he was doing, but I was there to make sure he stayed on track and drag him through the rough spots. Chapter 5, Up and Over. And so it began. At 5.25 p.m., Eric and I fast-walked out of the Winfield Aid Station and made our way towards Hope Pass. This is a mountain pass, which is a saddle between two mountains, and it tops out at 12,600 feet. Eric had already been up and over once. Now we were going back. Now, this is a tough climb at this point in the race. The runners are already 50-plus miles in, and they already know what they're up against, having just done it. And it's a psychologically hard place for the runners. But on the bright side, they get to pick up a pacer for the return trip. And Eric had me. My plan, if I ever actually had a plan, was just to try to keep up. Keep him engaged as much as possible, keep an eye on him, and periodically remind him to eat and drink a bit like a mother hen or a border collie. Our approach out of Winfield towards the pass was a beautiful single path through an aspen grove. Not easy running, but nothing out of the ordinary. We passed through places where avalanches had cleared the slopes of trees and piled things up. The single path hugged the side of the mountain with precipitous drop-offs, the side of the trail. It was a delightful afternoon. And the whole time we were climbing... Towards the pass, we were passing runners coming in the other direction, still on their way to the turnaround. And we would tell them, good work, and such. But we knew that they were dead men and women walking. We were tight on the cutoff, and there was not much chance that these stragglers were going to see the finish line. I believe the race intentionally makes the cutoffs tight early to sort people out before they get in too deep. There's a lot of attrition after the first trip over Hope Pass and even more on the way back. It doesn't seem hard on paper. You're only trying to hit three miles an hour. But the pass and the altitude, they mess with people. It gets into their heads, especially that second trip over. As we began to climb, I pulled out my phone and turned on some music, some Grateful Dead to pass the time. 
I had this fantasy, this vision, that my music would attract a van load of old hippies who had been hiding in the woods since the 60s, and they'd come trooping out smoking joints and dancing, and they'd join us on the trail. That didn't happen. When we got to a flat or a down, we'd run a few strides, but most of that climb, Eric was just grinding away, trying to hike the best he could. I was feeling good. The altitude scare passed. I was able to keep up and even get out front and pace a bit. We were grinding out maybe two, two and a half miles an hour. It was single path, rocky, trail, 15 to 20% grade. Just put your head down and push those quads up one step at a time. And I remember from the Burning River last year when Kevin was pacing me, and I was pretty shot at the end, he would stay ahead of me like a carrot on a stick and make me keep up with him. So I tried to do that with Eric. I could hear his hiking sticks clacking on the rocks behind me. I knew where he was, and I just tried to stay just out of reach. It took us a while to clear the tree line, and then we could see the pass. All around us, the mountains rose like gods. It was stunningly gorgeous in the late afternoon sun. As we got into the switchbacks and the final push, the temperature started to drop. I had been super comfortable in the 65-degree, dry, sunny afternoon, but now the wind kicked up above the tree line, and we stopped. We pulled over to fish out some gear. And I remember saying to Eric as we climbed the pass, it had better get cold because I'm going to be pissed if I had to carry all this winter gear and don't use it. A little ironic foreshadowing there. So I got my gloves on and a fleece beanie for the summit. I was wearing my Brooks baggy shorts with a pair of Zenza calf sleeves for added protection and a tech t-shirt with my water backpack. And I brought a running jacket with me. And as we approached the summit, I got Eric's video camera from him and scrambled up ahead to take some video of him crossing the pass. And I really was feeling the altitude, not so much in my legs and lungs, but in my head. My red blood cells were holding an emergency impeachment meeting to vote my brain out of office. The whole time at altitude for me is like, like I said, it's like a combination of a three or four beer hangover and a spring pollen allergy. Just a fuzzy head, dry sinuses, a little cough. I actually brought a bit of an airplane cough with me, but the dry altitude seemed to take care of it, dry it right up. And one thing I really loved was no chafing. With the lack of humidity, I never got sticky enough to lose any skin. And just like that, after a few hours of climbing, we were up and over. And Eric didn't even pause. He went blowing by me, not pausing at all, right through the pass. I had my backpack off, and I was putting on my jacket and finding my lights, and he had no time to rest. I, he, he was out of there, no time to waste. I'd have to catch up. He was on a mission. In the same way that having the pass in front of you messes with your mind, having it behind you seems to give you wings. And Eric was a machine. I mean, all night long he was a machine. And that's why he's finished this race eight times now. He just keeps moving. And this was to be his modus operandi. It didn't matter what was going on around him, he kept moving. At one point, we passed a guy who was down and out on the trail with people gathered around him, tending to him. And Eric didn't even pause. We just went chugging by this this poor bastard like he was a rock or a branch. And I think they ended up helicoptering that guy out because we heard the choppers after that. 
While I was on the path struggling to get into my jacket, the sun was setting. And it got even worse now because we were on the other side of the mountain from the sun, and it got dark in a hurry. As I was fishing out my headlamp and my flashlight in the dusk, this guy comes up and he says, do you have an extra light? I said, well, I have my runner's extra light, but that's my runner's extra light. And he says, the guy says to me, I'll give you $100 for it. <laughs> I don't think he actually had $100 on him. I think he just wanted me to understand the urgency of the situation. So I relented and gave him Eric's extra headlamp. He he made a show of putting Eric's bib number into his phone so we could get it back to us later. But as far as I know, that headlamp hasn't shown up again. Now I had to catch Eric, who had taken off running down the mountain. And so I put some coal in the boiler and started making way. Happy to be done with the whole hope pass thing without incident. And we actually had to run through a patch of snow up there, left over from the previous winter. No kidding. Slipping and sliding through the snow at 12,000 feet in the feeble, failing dusk, trying not to Superman as I was trying to catch Eric. And one thing you have to know about Eric, he's very tall, probably eight inches taller than me, with legs to match, and he eats up the ground. He eats up a lot of ground. When we were hiking, when we were walking, I'd have to run a little bit to keep up with him. 70 miles in, and he's walking faster than I can walk. And he thought I was trying to get him to run. I was just trying to keep up. Chapter 6. All Night Long. Coming out of the pass, the first landmark is the Hopeless Aid Station. And we paused there to refill our tanks. I was wearing a pack and carrying a bottle. We'd shoot goose every so often on the trail and then browse whatever was on offer at the aid stations. I made sure to be aggressive with the Enduralites under the unsupported theory that uh, the electrolytes would help my head in the thin air. We grabbed some hot broth and some noodles. Eric remixed his backpack with this sword energy stuff he was using and we pressed on. And next thing I know, he's retching off the side of the trail behind me. I guess the sword didn't mix well, and he got a super strong mouthful of that on top of the noodles, and, you know, 15 hours of running, and it all wanted to come back up. So I told him, keep moving. <laughs> if you're going to throw up, throw up, and we'll keep moving. You're going to feel shitty either way, so just keep moving. And he managed to get the offending admixture up and out, and we forged on. And we had the downhill now so we could make some time. We had to be back into Twin Lakes by 10 p.m. and it was going to be tight. We were making good time on the backside of the pass. By this time, with the dry air and the hundreds of runners, the trail was super dusty. You could see the dust in your headlamp and taste the grit in your mouth. I was coughing a lot and losing my voice, which did not keep me from singing. We were seesawing with another runner and his pacer, and I started singing West Texas Cowboys because of the one line in that song about dusty dirt. And the other pacer knew the words and was belting out the song with me. I felt great. We were having fun. Eric was keeping up. I don't know if it was my imagination, but I felt like there was probably more oxygen as we descended that dusty trail, dancing through the occasional rock garden. I'd try to hold my flashlight beam on anything that looked treacherous so Eric could get a good fix on it coming down behind me. 
and I'd try to call out the obstacles when I could. I'd say, toe grabbers, rock garden. And at one point off the side of the trail, the moon was rising over the lakes, and it was blood red. And it was just an awesome sight, dripping that blood red reflection into the lake between the mountains. And this is also where we passed Eric's son, Zach, and his wife. Zach was having some sort of stomach issue and had stopped running. And we tried to get him to come with us, but his head wasn't in it, so we forged on. Coming into Twin Lakes, there were, I don't know, five, six, seven open water crossings. They had a wet year, so there was more water than there usually is. And we splashed through these. Some were cold and knee-deep. Some were disturbingly warmer and muddy and knee-deep. And I only had one pair of shoes with me, but they were trail shoes, and I was pretty sure they'd drain out and be okay. Eric knew where we were, and he could smell the barn, so to speak. And he started to hammer through the water obstacles, and he was running hard through the fields to the aid station. So I just pulled in behind him and let him drag me in. As we got close, there was a lot of foot traffic. It was a bit confusing and crowded and dark. And Dan met us as we were coming in and told us to hustle to the timing mat because we were tight on time. So the three of us pushed through the crowd in the dark. I was accidentally body slamming into people in the trail because they were wandering in, crowding the course. I was trying to keep one eye on Eric. It was dark. And I was trying to figure out where the finish line was with some urgency. We made that cutoff by eight minutes, which was a good thing but also got me to worrying about the next cutoff and making up some time with my athlete being 60-plus miles into the race. The crew got Eric into a chair and took care of his needs and while I tried to clean all the sand and gravel out of my shoes from the water crossings. We topped off our tanks and got back on the trail. We had work to do. It was just after 10 p.m. local time, midnight on the Boston clock, Eric had been going for 17 hours, and I had him for five of those. We had to get to the next cutoff at Halfpipe by 1.15 a.m. Less than 10 miles, but on this course, you never know. There was a lot of fire road and a lot of climbing up out of Twin Lakes. Everybody talks about Hope Pass, but not so much about how there's another mountain to climb out of Twin Lakes. So we worked it. We were making time, catching runners. Eric continued to be a machine. It was all work now. We were deep into it and deep into the night. And this is where I decided that Eric was probably a robot. He kept telling me details about the course as we were coming up on them. There's a little hill here, then a downhill, then switchbacks with rocks. We're coming up on 70 miles for him, and he knows exactly where he is. He's lucid. He's moving well. Definitely a robot. But we got into a nice rhythm on the downhills and the flats. I stayed out in front and set the cadence. It's an old old ultra running trick. You count out a cadence. You count, so I count out 12 strides at run, then I count out 12 strides at a hike. And it keeps you focused on moving without overworking anything. If you feel good, you can extend it. If you don't, you can shorten it up. I kept just enough distance between Eric and I, just far enough ahead to keep him engaged and moving. And we made it in the half pipe with time to spare. And frankly, I wasn't looking at my watch much anymore. We were just focused on moving and letting the course take care of itself. We had three hours and 15 minutes to get there. We did it in 2.42 and and banked another 20 minutes on the cutoff. I was getting tired. 
coming down into half pipe. I had some waves of nausea on the trail, and I was totally disappointed that it turned out only to be gas. I thought for sure I was going to get dropped. I figured I should hit the porta potty at half pipe just to be sure. They had them helpfully rigged with lights inside, and not so helpfully absent any toilet paper, but we make do. When I took my pack off, I realized that I'd worked up a good sweat coming down the mountain, and the cold air on my wet body sent me quickly into chills. It was cold! I got some hot broth in the tent and cuddled up to the gas heater for a couple minutes. Then when Eric was ready to go, I told him we'd have to keep moving because I was on the edge of hypothermia. With only eight and a half more miles to outbound, where I would hand him off to Dan, I figured I could tough it out. I was suffering a bit, nothing awful, but with the altitude and the cold, I was right at the edge of my training. The course was relatively easy in this section, and we just kept up a good cadence and kept moving. We were deep into the night, we were still passing lots of runners. Eric was asking for the time, but I didn't want to roll up my sleeve to look at my watch because I didn't want to lose the heat. So I just told him to never mind, keep moving. And we got that good, steady, run-hike cadence going, and we were making really good time. I had to drop him by 3 a.m. local time, which would be 5 a.m. my time, and we were all good. With about 5K left, we're cutting through this farm field, and we were treated to a wonderful visual. A bit of true performance art. A runner was relieving himself in a great golden arc by the spotlight of his headlamp. It was like a water feature you'd expect to see in a Venetian fountain. We congratulated him. We applauded. And that was it for me. We pushed down a section of open road and across a field that seemed to go on forever. My lights were dying, and I was having trouble sighting and staying on the trail in the field. We pushed into the outbound station, and I tagged off the Dan. I gave him the update. Eric was doing great. He was eating. He was drinking. He was performing other bodily functions with reassuring regularity, and he was lucid. Duty done. I collapsed into a chair with my teeth chattering from the cold and tried to disappear into a space blanket. We had picked up some more time, and Eric and Dan got a good 40-minute cushion to work with. My watch said I had run almost exactly 27 miles in almost exactly 9 hours, for almost exactly three miles an hour. And I probably could have toughed out another 12 miles, but it wouldn't have been pretty. <laughs> Eric's crew bundled me into the car with the heat on to give me a ride back to the hotel for a hot shower and a couple hours of napping. Eric and Dan pressed on into the dark morning. Chapter 7, Aftermath. I got a couple hours sleep and then headed back over to base camp to join the rest of the crew. And we drove over to Leadville, trying to figure out from Dan's text messages how close Eric was to the 30-hour cutoff. It looked like it was going to be close, and we were prepared for the worst. I got some hot coffee and some oatmeal, and we waited by the road on a warm, sunny Leadville, beautiful morning, watching the happy parade of exhausted runners come up the street with their crews arm-in-arm in celebration. And sure enough, with 20 minutes left on the clock, Eric and Dan came up the street, and there was much rejoicing. And we all ran him in. He was, he was funny. He was like a happy drunk. He just finished his eighth 
Leadville Trail 100 race on his 59th birthday on a day where only 42% of the people who started made it home. It's a beautiful, terrible race that gives back to its runners more than it takes in the end. It fills them with a satisfaction of having faced this terrible, beautiful course across the sky and walked away. Sometimes with a belt buckle, always with a bucket of memories. So thank you, Eric. That was something. That was something to be part of. If memories and experiences are the currency of our lives, then I am a very rich man. West Texas Cowboys, there's all around. Green liquor and money, there's loaded down. So soon after payday, no, it seems a shame. You know my uncle, he starts spelling again. Hey, how the little track and the winner take the hand. So 